welcome to the Proper Mental Podcast. Normalising open and honest conversations about mental health by having open and honest conversations about mental health. mental podcast or just welcome if you've not been before either way you're very welcome this is episode 97 and my guest this week is Stuart Ralph who is a counsellor and psychotherapist for children and young people he's also the host of the OCD stories a weekly podcast where he interviews some of the best minds in OCD recovery and Stuart was kind of the perfect guest really to take me through an episode about obsessive compulsive disorder he has his own lived experience he started to experience OCD at the age of seven and it was his own journey of recovery that would go on to inspire and inform a lot of the things that he does now. In 2018, he was awarded the Hero Award by the International OCD Foundation, and his podcast currently has four and a half million downloads and counting. So we're able to do the lived experience stuff, and Stuart talks about how OCD came into his life, how it affected him, how it affected his family, what he did about it, and how he worked towards recovery. We also talk about his work as a counsellor and psychotherapist, how he got into that, and some of his ideas about the way he practices his work. But it's also that background means that he's able to really talk about the different types of OCD and how they manifest in people, how they show up, where they come from, and of course, what people can do about it. So as well as talking about the different types of OCD, we also talk about some of the different therapies that are available, some of the different options, and we can do all that from a counsellor and psychotherapist perspective. And then, of course, he's got his incredible podcast, well over 300 episodes. And in that process, he's talked to a, a who's who of people in the OCD community, whether they're experts or researchers or therapists or, or whether they're people with lived experience who are sharing their stories, sharing their journeys. And again, Stuart being involved in these conversations, it just gives him such a wonderful insight into the bigger picture, the smaller picture, all sides of the picture. And it's a fascinating episode. I think OCD is it's often left out of the, the mainstream mental health and mental illness conversation. It's often misunderstood. It's often misrepresented. And it was wonderful to just kind of be, just to be guided through it by someone with as much experience and as much compassion as Stuart. And it was awesome because I just felt I could ask maybe some really obvious questions, you know, maybe some quite big questions. But I do think when we're talking about the bigger conversations in life, and mental illness is definitely one of those conversations, I often think people are so scared to get things wrong that they become scared to engage. And if people aren't engaging, they're not talking, they're not learning, nothing's changing. So this was a wonderful opportunity for me just to ask the questions. Because if I'm thinking, if I don't know, the chances are someone who's listening doesn't know either, right? If you want to know more about Stuart, you can go to theocdstories.com. There's links there for everything that he does. Or follow at the OCD Stories on Twitter or Instagram. There's links to all those in the episode notes. If you want to know more about me, propermentalpodcast.com or at propermentalpodcast on all social media platforms. And if you want to help me out and spread the word by the podcast, please leave me a review. It's always very much appreciated. And this is episode 97 of the Proper Mental Podcast with Stuart Ralph. Thank you very much for listening. Enjoy.
So here we are with another episode of the Proper Mental Podcast. And my guest this week is Stuart Ralph. How are you, mate? I'm good. Yeah, good. Thank you for having me on. Oh, mate, thank you for uh, thank you for joining me. Yeah, it's uh, great to chat. I really appreciate your time. There's kind of um, a few different places that we could start with this conversation, Stuart. But I thought maybe the easiest one was uh, was with your with your podcast. And uh, if you could yeah. tell me sort of how it how it came about and how it's grown over the years. Yeah. Um, so the first episode launched, I think, on December the fourth, twenty fifteen. It was around that time anyway, if it wasn't the fourth. Um, and the, well, the, the OCD stories originally started as I wanted it to be like a one-stop shop for people's stories. Um, because when I was struggling, uh, there were stories all over the internet, but they were just scattered at the time. There wasn't one place that was sharing written stories. Now there's loads, thankfully. Um, so for about three months prior to the podcast, I was doing like publishing people's written stories and then I really wanted to do a podcast because I wanted to interview um uh, just experts people that that knew a hell of a lot more than I did and obviously it's a way of getting their advice about paying them um so that was that was nice um and also at the time it was like okay and if it helps anyone that that's awesome so I'll just share it but I think the reason why I started the OCD stories in the written format originally was I was kind of sitting on the edge of my bed like in a real sort of low point thinking that this sucks you know but if, it, if it's gonna suck and this is my life right now then someone else may benefit might as well benefit from it I guess is what I'm saying so kind of turning that as um uh, what's his what's his name Victor Frankl say sort of turning uh suffering into meaning and that that was that was that for me that kind of gave me that hope and that purpose and as we, we said before starting that's something to do um you know keep my mind busy and my hands busy um so that was really how it got started and it's been what seven years nearly now um I think I'm on 330 or 40 episodes I can't remember um yeah, every Sunday. And I'd say about half of them are story episodes. So I interview people, people for their story and then half are sort of clinician or researcher based. And uh, I try and go a bit more wide. I don't try and stay in the, 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 the narrow, um, this is what works for ERP type conversation. That's very heavily a part of it, but I try and be a bit more experimental with the podcast too. Yeah, sure. I suppose like you, you know, you don't know who's listening, right? And you want to exactly. kind of have, yeah, have the angle for for every person. I, I think I really think it's fascinating with um, like people coming on to tell their stories because mm. there's so much power in relatability, right? Yeah. And any sort of mental illness, any sort of mental disturbance, blip, whatever you want to call it. Um, yeah. It's just so lonely, isn't it? And hearing other people talk, there's so much power in that. Exactly. That kind of that me too being seen. Right. Um, and and yeah, and I think you can learn as much from someone's story as you can from a world renowned expert. You know, there's 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 nuggets of information in every story. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I, I've, I spoke to um, uh, Catherine Benfield, who I know yeah. that you're uh, your pals with, and she yeah, said something cool. about um, about OCD that that really kind of like stood out to me. And she said to me that there's as many types of OCD as there are people with OCD. Hmm. And, um, you know, I really love that. And you can probably apply that to any sort of like yeah. diagnosis or label or, or whatever you hmm. want to want to call it. But I suppose, again, with people telling their stories, you don't have to you don't have to relate to all of it. Right. You don't even have to have experienced all of it. It's just sometimes it's that one little nugget, that one phrase, that one thing. And you think, hmm. yeah, that that bit is me. And suddenly everything um makes a lot of lot of sense yeah it's interesting she said that she she's right um 
And it's why people email me or contact me and they say, you know, is, is this a form of OCD or, or, you know, is this? And I'm like, I've never heard of that, but absolutely it, it is or can be because um, OCD is OCD is, is why it's not just me that says that other people say that, but I like to say it because or we can see OCD is just something going on in our brain. Um, it's actually trying to keep us safe. It thinks we're in danger and that's it's that's what's happening. But um, so it wears these kind of masks. We want to externalize OCD for a second. And, and one day it could be contamination, you know, worried about yeah, HIV on the door handle or something like that. Another day it could be your relationship or your relationship to God, or it could be about hurting someone or harming a child, or uh, and then another day it could be something completely random. Um, nothing's coming to my mind at the minute, but it it, it it will they often say it will go after what you care about most um and i think that's just, just your brain doesn't want you to get hurt so it's trying to protect you but yeah it can scattergun there can be a million and one themes as we'd call them or subtypes but i don't necessarily like the word subtype because that implies it is a separate almost disorder and it's not whether it, which is contamination today or relationship tomorrow it's the same thing it's that we're still addressing the ocd but yeah, yeah. Do you think like because it's, you know, because it can be so individual and so um, like varied for want of a mm -hmm. better word, that must really add to the stigma of like asking for help or first like realizing what's going on within yourself and then talking about it because some of the things that OCD can kind of latch onto are very, very difficult to, to talk about, right? And that oh, really, it's very, it seems like very murky waters for people to first realize what's going on and what they need help for and then mm -hmm. to actually go and ask for help it's like a i suppose that's sort of that's a bad question really that's two things in one there but, no no um, you, you you're right um yeah so although i said ocd is ocd that some themes do carry more stigma with them so you know if someone's worrying about actually before i say this is what i'm saying for anyone who's not familiar with ocd the intrusive thoughts people get which actually pretty much all of us get them from time to time but with some of ocd it sticks around for longer they get more anxious so they put more importance on the thought and then start doing compulsions um but they they don't want the thoughts so i don't know if you've ever stood on the edge of a train platform or london underground and you just got this image of jumping and you you know I, that happens to me a lot even now and i'm i'm not suicidal at those times i'm not um wanted to jump and it's it scared me it shocked me i've stepped back from the platform that's just an intrusive thought you know i had no control over that coming into my head so and and i didn't want it so it's the same with someone for example with like um what we'd call pedophile themed ocd so someone who's freaking out and worrying about being a pedophile so they're doing all these compulsions to check if they are make sure they're not um and it, it's terrifying for them and often these people are people that deeply care about children they could be nursery workers primary school teachers um just parents um so obviously for them it's even more troubling because this is something they value you know nurturing and caring for kids so for them going to go to their, you know, their GP or their doctor or midwife and say, I'm having these, this is what happened to Catherine, actually. I don't know if it was pedophile fiends, but around sort of harming her kid. And she did tell her midwife. And so this is, this is a terrible, a scary conversation to have with some of these fiends. Whereas saying, maybe going to GP and saying, actually, I'm really worried about germs and contamination it's still scary to have that conversation but there's less societal stigma attached to the idea of contamination versus pedophilia for example and of course other taboo themes like being a serial killer um 
what else even in in some cultures religious what would call religious themed ocd if they're worrying about blaspheming against god whoever their god is going to their priest or iman or whoever is, is probably very scary conversation to say i'm having these sometimes sexual thoughts towards jesus for example is is really hard conversation yeah. um yeah i mean especially when like you know, like you said, you know, about the societal impact, right? So it's just mm. stuff that people don't want to talk about, don't want to, and then to have to, yeah, put it in a way that you're asking for help, you're approaching and letting it outside of your head. Yeah, um, yeah you can see why that is, um, that is awful. Yeah. I was wondering if we could use your kind of experience as yeah. um, speaking to all the, these people, but also your experience of being a therapist, if we could kind of look at the, some of the more, and we're going to have to um, I'm always quick to say we're going to talk in really like general terms now, yeah. right? Um, but uh, you know some of the more common um, common types or common themes of of OCD. I know you touched on a, a few of them there, but I think that'd be really useful for people to um, yeah. people to hear to maybe understand it a little bit more because there are some that tend to come up a little bit more more frequently, maybe. Absolutely, and it's going to depend on maybe gender, maybe not so much gender. I'm trying to. Yeah, that could be wrong, but let's say gender for a second. It definitely depends on age. So, so the themes I see quite commonly are, are very different from when I speak to an OC, a therapist who treats OCD for adults. They don't get these themes as much. So, for example, something I'm seeing a lot of the minute with teenagers um, and young adults is this super phobia around technology around it's almost being contaminated or dad's phones contaminated or mum's phones contaminated can't go in any room if that phone's in for example um, sometimes it's like a general and when i say contamination i mean like a mental contamination it's just that it feels off or dirty for want of a better phrase um, sometimes it's a worry around technology with being watched or listened to and it might be, I'm afraid that it's going to hear me or, or an app's going to be open, it's going to record me and I'm going to say something incriminating, this idea. And, and that, that's usually accompanied with thoughts of them being a bad person or, or being a murderer or something like this or a predator to children, for example. So technology has been huge, I've seen recently around among teens, not saying that doesn't happen in adults, but. Um, and for example, in America, the, a, a rising theme I've heard is around cancel culture. So that, and it's much more prevalent in America than it is here. Um, they're super worried about being cancelled, and they're just obsessing about it. And it. Yeah, even though they've probably not done anything to be cancelled. Although I'm sure we've all said something in the past that could cancel us. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, very much so. Yeah, uh, I mean, there's, there's nothing yeah. there that you're mentioning that has not. Yeah gone through my head many yeah. times do you know what i mean exactly. that's the uh that's it, it. it's just that, the, yeah sorry go for it no it's, i suppose it's just the uh it's the ocd then that kind of puts that thought on steroids right that's it, a good way to put it yeah and, and that, what you've said is normalizing ocd because everyone has those thoughts to a point but it's like it just as you say it goes on steroids um uh, but then more generally traditional ones, or if you were to read a book on OCD, the ones you'd see in there are religious OCD. So worrying, um, well, it could be really broad. It's, it's pretty much sinning against God it, or worrying that you've sinned. And it could be like sexual thoughts about God. It could be just about sinning. It could be uh, anything really along those lines or not being good enough in, in your faith. Um, relationship OCD, which typically gets talked about within romantic relationships, which is super uh, hyper obsessing about is this the right one for me um am i going to make a mistake am i going to ruin their lives by marrying them but the other side of that it's also 
people become hyper-focused on their partners, say their nose or their ears or um, their beard. I'm looking at you now, you're as an, you know, giving me inspiration. And, and they'll be, they're hyper-focused, like, do I like this person's beard? Do I hate it? What's wrong? If I hate it, does that mean I'm not meant to be with them? And blah, blah, blah. even though they've never cared about the beard before, but suddenly their brain's going, what if the beard's wrong? And it, it means this, you know, it's, it suddenly becomes, yeah, threatening. Um, okay, so religious OCD, relationship OCD. Then there's the taboo themes like um, pedophile themed OCD, um, heart, what we'd call harm OCD, which is a more general term for like worrying about harming anyone. Um, it could also be self-harm or suicidal themed OCD, which is worrying that what happens if I'm suicidal? Now, these people typically are not suicidal, in, as in the case of someone maybe who, who is depressed. They, they, they aren't at that point. But they're worrying what happens if I am. I don't want to kill myself. And they start obsessing about that again with self-harm. What happens if I if I self-harm? Um and uh what else? So taboo themes can be there's there's tons of them. What we'd call violent sexual intrusive thoughts. Uh contamination is obviously a classic one. Um just right well and contamination could be physical contamination like dirt or like a disease like ebola or hiv or monkeypox now is on the rise in terms of ocd worrying about it that is um and it could be emotional contamination this person is contaminated and if i go near them i'll feel icky or mentally dirty um what else am i missing and then you get you you get way more than different themes or stranger themes but it's all it's all ocd yeah so it's almost um almost based on the same formula right and it's just yeah. a different something it's, you just replace the word feeding. hit and run ocd is another one that just came to my mind so and i had this a bit i'd drive back and forth I, i'd probably hit a manhole cover or a pothole or just you know where the road had crumbled um and in my head it's like no i've hit someone so I'd, I'd drive around over and over again, even though I can see what I hit was what I hit. But you, and people do this for hours, you know, that's that kind of, yeah. again, it, it comes back to, I guess, harm and, and not wanting to be a bad person. I mean, that comes up quite a lot in OCD because the, the common thing you'll, you'll meet with people with OCD is they're incredibly nice people. And there's something in there, I think, about, yeah, just not wanting to be a bad person and being deeply afraid or ashamed of, of being anything other than good. Yeah. Anyway, that, that's my thinking off the top of my head. Yeah. That's not researched, I don't think. Yeah, it's a, it's a lovely thought, though, right? It's a mm. lovely way to, to look at a, um, a really awful like situation, you know? Yeah. Is it kind of, um, uh, what's, the, what's the word? Is there, does there tend to be, um, an event as a trigger for OCD? And again, I know these are really general questions, but, um, you know, yeah. does it tend to be something that creeps up on people or event related? Yeah. So for some people, um, it can happen. Like for me, I, my earliest memory was seven and I don't really have many memories before that. So it could have just happened at seven. It could have existed before then for me. And that's quite common. And it happens from a young age and slowly kind of builds up. And for others, they're like 19 and suddenly they get hit by it or maybe in their 20s. Those are kind of the two typical things that happen. Or it could be someone has a child and that maybe triggers something um, because the stress of having a child, the hormones of having a child, everything else uh, could be a trigger. Not to put anyone off having kids, obviously, um, you'll your, your manage. Um, but yeah, to answer your question, I guess I when you said it, event, I interpreted that as trauma. 
um and the, the the debate is out so some people will say it's biological when i don't think there's any massively hard evidence to prove or concrete evidence that it is 100 percent biological at least i think it's definitely a, a proponent but um yeah trauma is i think there's there's one study that looked at like 30 percent of people had trauma with ocd another one i saw was like up to 82 percent so depending on which study you look at it really varies but and again, uh, I did an episode on trauma recently, actually, of a trauma and OCD specialist, um, and she made the comment of um, it depends how you define trauma as well. So if you're looking at really big one-off incidences or even repeated big incidences, the number's going to be smaller. But if you look at developmental trauma or maybe a caregiver just wasn't as attuned as you needed and you were a sensitive child, then that and and you had nowhere to share those feelings or get them met or, or or felt attuned and nurtured, that probably would become a trauma, maybe. So then if you factor that in, then the number's going to be bigger. But so I don't know. The the jury's out. Um I like the trauma argument from a basis of if it is trauma, then there's more we can do with it. If it's biological, it makes it slightly harder. Um, same with depression, the whole biological argument versus is it trauma related or unfortunate circumstances that have, that have led to depression, you know, if it yeah. is, yeah, if it is biological, it's, I don't like that as much. I just, I think as a therapist, I think there's more power when you know this, the stuff you can work through. It gives yeah. me more comfort. Yeah, definitely. And I suppose it's that working through that's important, right? So in to some extent, the, mm. the, the why isn't you know, it doesn't have to be relevant if we don't want it to be right. It's, yeah, the, it's the working through and the, and the yeah. healing that, that counts. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Yeah. So uh, with regards to, cause there's something else that um, I see a lot uh, on social media and things like that. If I read stuff about OCD, um, there's often very less commonplace treatments that are mentioned for it. So like we, we come to, I always think of like anxiety and depression as being like the poster children of mental health. Right. Yeah. So we know that with those things, you hear about the same things you hear about CBT, you hear about sertraline or whatever, yeah. but with OCD, it tends to be more, you know, cause of like the exposure therapy and compassion based therapy. There's a lot of like terms there that aren't as commonplace um, to people outside of the OCD community. Yeah. Um, and I was wondering if we could just chat about, about some of about some of those and, and yeah. how they work yeah good point yeah i mean yeah you're right depression anxiety is is the poster child um i think it's the most commonly given diagnosis depression with anxiety combined by the gps um and which yeah, i think sometimes as a therapist i'm I, i'm fine with diagnosis i think it's important sometimes but i think formulation is sometimes more important because it's like well, why are you depressed? Why are you anxious? There could be no reason. Maybe it is biological, but for some people, it's when we look and we're like, okay, right now, you know, you lost your job or this thing happened or da, 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 and you start to get a picture of like, okay, now let's improve these, you know, let's work on it. It's, um, it's more understanding than here's this label and you, you're just this thing, you know, yeah. Yeah, versus you're, so. you're more than that. Um, anyway, that's, that's my personal take, but, um, I'm forgetting your question now because I've gone off on a tangent. Uh, oh, oh, the, the treatments. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's a good one. So ERP, exposure and response prevention therapy, is what they call the gold standard treatment for OCD. Um, I use it with every client who has OCD. Um, it is by far the most researched therapy for, for OCD and anxiety, I believe, generally. Um, 
it is actually a part of the way to look at it is really a tool or a therapy within CBT. So CBT is this big umbrella term that, that captures many different tools and treatments. Um, and ERP is one of those. So ERP is more of the, the B part of CBT. So cognitive behavioral therapy, it's a behavioral therapy. It's less focused on the thinking and the cognition and more on, okay, what are we going to do? How can we change your behavior with the thinking that if we change your behavior, your thoughts and feelings will change. Um, so it, it is very effective for many people. It, it's not a magic bullet though. Um, studies have shown that. It's not, it doesn't help everyone. You could argue from those studies though, that sometimes I've, on my podcast, you know, people will do four, see four different therapists and it's the four therapists using ERP that helps them. And that's because that therapist maybe spotted something the others haven't or the relationship was better. Um, but yeah, typically with ERP, it's, it's, it's leaning into your fears or, or facing them somewhat. And then the main part, though, the only reason we lean into fears, for example, with spiders, if you had a phobia, the only reason we're going like Googling spiders or maybe eventually holding a spider, that would be a big one, but we're looking at a spider in a glass jar is to spike the anxiety so then we can respond differently, which is the RP, the response prevention. And that's where our brain learns that, oh, nothing bad happened or, you know, and it's that what I'd call the downstairs brain where anxiety is coming from. It, it doesn't understand cognition and words. So the, the, the bit of our brains that's having this conversation is our upstairs brain, the, the um, prefrontal cortex. It's the really smart part of our brain. And the downstairs brain is, is a lot of where our emotions and anxiety comes from. And we can't rationalize with that brain very well, which is why ERP works, because if we change our behavior, that downstairs brain starts to get the message, but we can't necessarily talk to it as easily because um, it, it doesn't speak any language. Um, so yeah, so the, the RP is hugely important, changing our behavior. And at first it's terrifying, right? You know, for example, with the spider, it might be that I run out of the room. So if I decide not to run out of room, the room, that's me um, preventing the response. And over time, my anxiety will go down. Um, or I'll learn something new, which is the newer way of looking at ERP, that actually it was okay. The spider didn't eat me alive and um, yeah, I'm here to tell the tale. Uh, and of course, in OCD, it's, oh, your brain starts to learn. It's okay. I can be around children and I didn't do anything bad, you know? Um, again, it might be giving one of my clients a knife, you know, who's worried about being a killer or a serial killer. And, and we might have the knife in the whole session. It, we might do various things with it. And, and the whole time they haven't stabbed me. So they're, they're learning, their brain's learning and I'm taking that risk, but oh, I, I know it's OCD. Uh, I'm learning, they're learning that, oh, it's okay. I'm not, of course they can tell themselves I'm not a serial killer. It's not going to make a difference. Mm. It might in the short term, but in the long term, it's not going to change anything. We need to show that we can be around these things we're afraid of and nothing happened. Yeah. Um, that's, um, that's like, it makes so much sense, right? Mm. It makes so much sense. And there's always, there's always the kind of like the intellectual part of me that goes, Oh yeah. Like, like I completely understand that. Mm. That's also so scary. Yes. And I think there's a lot yeah. about when people are, are poorly, regardless of what they're, they're going through. Mm. Sometimes, you know, that you're in the shit, but you know, every inch of that shit. So it's, if there's a part of you that wants to stay still, right? Because yes, coming out yeah. of that comfort zone is probably a more articulate way of saying it. No, it's that, <laughs> yeah. The, yeah, the better yeah. the devil, you know, that quote. Exactly it's, that, mate. Yeah. 
yeah, yeah. It's it's how, but it's it's familiar, you know. It's that, yeah. Which why some people don't want to do treatment, and that's that's really un- unfortunate. And maybe sometime they'll get to a point where something shifts, and then they're willing. But um, just to, yeah, just to not scare people on ERP, because I brought up the knife example, and that's quite that's a very traditional way of doing ERP. The newer way is what we'd call uh, values-based exposure. So holding the knife is just showing our brain that I'm not going to do anything. But a values-based exposure, for example, with contamination is we could say, you know, just touch this door handle, and we would do that, but that's that's not something you would, I mean, you would do it if you opened a door, but you would never, like touching a toilet seat, you'd never do that typically or maybe you would to shut it anyway i'm not helping the situation here but my point is it's not something you you value you care about doing so what we might say with contamination is right you're really afraid of using cutlery in a cafe because you don't know who's used it or it's been cleaned properly so instead of just me bringing cutlery into the room let's go to a cafe or you go to a cafe this week and and basically eat use the cutlery that is the exposure but the values come in of, I really wanted to try out this cafe. I've never been, and I've always wanted to go there. So it, it's merging the facing your fears with something you actually want to do to make it more meaningful. And then again, it's building up your life again, because you're doing things that are important to you and of your values. So it, it can be done much softer than what I originally said. Um, yeah. But, but yeah, just a long-winded to actually answer your question, which was about the other therapies. Um, so ERP, yeah, by far the most researched. The second most researched, I believe, is acceptance and commitment therapy, which is something I use equally as much as ERP with my clients. It's much more about learning to tolerate and make space for these uncomfortable thoughts and feelings and then move in the direction of your values. Um, there's much more to it that, but that, that's the simple way. And then um, another one I use is compassion-focused therapy, which again is, um, how do I describe this? Well, it's, it's compassion. So it's just bringing in, so another way to look at it is with OCD or we'd call like the inner critic, we all have that, that voice that beats us up, tells us we're not good enough or we're stupid for doing something wrong or um, it, it's nurturing that compassionate voice within us to be like, to be a friend, to be a parent to ourselves, to learn to soothe and regulate ourselves when we're, we're stuck in what they'd call the threat system in CFT, compassion focus therapy. Um, and I really like that, that bringing compassion, especially for OCD where there's so much guilt and shame. It's not just anxiety. A lot of my clients, guilt is a bigger driver than anxiety for these obsessions. Um, so bringing in that compassion, I just think is, is, is crucial. Um, so those are kind of the big three I use for OCD. Um, but then there's other therapies now like um, uh, inference-based therapy, which is starting to get some momentum for OCD. I couldn't tell you exactly what that is. It's not my area. Uh, and then like I've done other podcasts like internal family systems which again very much looks at there's parts of us and and that's very focused on trauma Um, that's really interesting Um, what else and then see obviously for for UK therapists will, will be shouting at me now for not saying more about CBT so ERP Americans will talk about ERP all day long if you speak to someone in the UK they'll talk about CBT now they typically include ERP in that, but they use the word CBT because they'll bring in other cognitive elements from the C part of CBT. I don't use that. It's not my style, but it's a very common thing here uh, in the UK and and parts of America. Um, But if you look at all the studies for OCD, the thing they're focusing on is ERP, not the rest of CBT. Sometimes they bring it in. So that's why I I don't necessarily talk about it. But yeah, that's it. I guess I share that as well. So anyone in the UK... They go to the doctor or, or uh, CAMS or NHS or IAP, 
and they'll say, oh, you, you need CBT or I want CBT, you might say to them and they'll give you CBT. But I suppose so many people, I'm like, did they include ERP in that? And they're like, no, we were doing um, uh, cognitive restructuring or something like that, which is okay, but it's not gonna, it's not gonna massively help, I don't think. Um, so it's really important to say, yes, CBT, but please can ERP be a part of that? Um, and you can quote the NICE guidelines, which you can find you just type nice guidelines OCD there's the UK charity should come up and they've done a page about it but in the nice guidelines it talks about ERP being important and the NHS is their bible they live by the nice guidelines so if you quote that to them you're almost forcing their hand um yeah, yeah. that's fantastic because there is often a gap isn't there between what um you know we kind of know to be successful or important or whatever and what mm. is being able to be recommended by your doctor in, in that moment, there can exactly. be a bit of a bit of a, a gap. I mean, that's a much bigger conversation, right? But yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So for OCD, and again, I'm just kind of like, uh, just not comparing it to other things. But uh, again, it's very, very common if you talk about depression and anxiety, mm. um, for the same sort of like medications to just to keep coming up. Um, and like, that obviously that's a very individual thing that we're not advocating for or against, but I suppose what I'm interested in, what I'm trying to grasp at is for OCD, is there, is the medications available that, you know, can be work for people or is it more like a therapy based approach to uh, helping that out? Yeah. So uh, obviously I have to be careful what I say here because mm, I'm not course. a psychiatrist or a GP. Um, but yeah, there are, there are several medications. It's pretty much the same ones I believe is, is for depression. Um, so the SSRIs, right. um, there, there's a few, I think it also depends on your age. There's some that they won't give you until you're over a certain age or, and obviously if you're pregnant, there's one same for depression that they won't give you, um, if you're pregnant or trying to get pregnant. So it's definitely, yeah, speak to your psychiatrist, a GP, but medication is definitely an option for, for OCD. Some people take it. Um, and I would say therapy is important though. That needs to be alongside, um, but, uh, there are people as well that don't take medication and, and do really well. Um, so it's really, again, this depends. I think if with the biological element, I think, um, it depends person to person. So it's, you know, why some people really find that it, they need medication. There's nothing wrong with that. And, and that really helps them. Other people, for whatever reason, don't take it and, and also do well without it. So it's really interesting. And I think that comes down to our individual biology and DNA of our makeup, basically. So there's no stigma there, hopefully. Mm. Um, it's just us as individuals. Something I advocate on the podcast of, we talk about ERP a lot, but maybe there's something else for you, you know, or a combination. It's about as an individual finding what works for you, and what you need. Yeah, sure. I suppose that's why I'm asking really, because I think just knowing that there are options out there, whether you, mm. you might decide you don't want those options, that's yeah. fine. But sometimes it can bring a lot of peace because yeah. when when people are struggling with anything, when people are really in it, it sometimes feels like there's just nothing there, right? There's just nothing yeah. that can that can help. So sometimes exactly. say, well, there is all these things and you don't have to use any of them. You don't have to, you mm. can use any combination of them. It, sometimes it can be quite yeah. quite useful yeah but you mentioned your own experience earlier Stuart you know starting at the age of of seven yeah how did that journey progress if, if I'm okay to ask about that and how yeah, did that of course. start to, to manifest for you as you as you grow up yeah I'm open about it I'll, I'll I typically don't talk about myself with clients but with OCD clients I, I will initially just to make them feel normal because there's this I, I know someone has OCD before they even open their mouth because they're hesitating about saying something and that's usually a big sign for me, at least, that uh, they're, they're going to tell me an intrusive thought. Um, 
uh, but yeah, so they, um, uh, so, so yeah, I share with them to normalize, I guess what I'm saying, especially with the young kids. Like I can say, you know, when I was your age, yeah, I was experiencing something similar and it is scary, but it's, it's whatever. Um, so yeah, so I was seven, my earliest memory, I was in, um, on holiday, uh, Disney World, Disneyland, the Americans always correct me. I get the two mixed up, whatever one is in Florida, uh, <laughs> I've got no idea, uh, Disney, what? a Disney park. And uh, we're at this like motel or something. And it, actually, no, it's before that. So we landed that night. My dad was ill, maybe like plain food or something or just jet lag. So he went to bed early. My mum and my brother and I were at it's like a Denny's or a Wendy's uh, eating. And I, all I remember that meal is uh, suddenly being bombarded by these images of this tarantula slowly walking up my, my dad's kind of arm, shoulder, and it was going to kill him. That, that was the, the, the scary thought that kept coming to me over and over again. At the time, I didn't know it was anxiety, but looking back, it was very much anxiety. And I remember feeling, I need to say something. Otherwise, if he dies and we get there, it's going to be all my fault because I could have saved him, you know. Uh, and for whatever reason, I didn't say anything. Uh, and we got back. He was obviously fine. The tarantula didn't, well, at least didn't kill him. It might have bitten him. You never know. Um, I have no certainty, uh, but then yeah, like the next day or that week in the pool, I would get overwhelmed by sharks being in there. Now there were no sharks in this pool, obviously. Um, so I would swim from one corner to the other. So I was in the water for about a meter, two meters of, of, of water. And then I would jump out and get as far away from the side as I could. Now as a seven-year-old, I wanted to play in the pool. It was ridiculously hot in Florida. It was like June or July. Um, and then there were times my brother like held me in the pool and like, and I'm freaking out panicking. Cause to me, I'm about to be eaten by a shark. He thinks it's funny. Uh, and, and uh, yeah, so, so it was, I guess I'm saying it was a huge heightened anxiety and that, that shark thing stayed with me. Even now I'll get images in my head, but I know I'm like, I, I kind of say to myself, good. Yeah. I hope I get eaten. I'm kind of leaning into the thoughts and the irrelevance of, of it. Um, and I won't change my behavior. I'll keep swimming. So it's way less than it's ever been. But occasionally it will happen to me still to this day. Um, and when I was a kid, out in the bathtub, I'd get intrusive thoughts. I was going to get eaten by a shark. Wow. So it almost sounds completely out there. But with OCD, there's a part of your brain that knows it's ridiculous. That's that upstairs brain I was talking about. It's the downstairs brain that doesn't know that because it has no eyes. It can't see. So it doesn't know what it just feels there's a threat um and i was so yeah so anyway so that was that and then it became more around bad things happening to people in other countries so i would have to tap or count a certain number or like tap the banister as i walk past it um old old uh, objects and paintings really set me off for whatever reason uh, and i'd have to walk back and forth back and forth back and forth for like 10 15 20 minutes at a time again with doorways this is a common obesity like thresholds walking back and forth especially with children um, and the, the feeling there was if I don't do this, it, something won't be quite right, which is actually another theme of OCD. That's something's not going to be quite right. But for me, it was a bit different in the sense of if I don't get this right and walk back and forth or count the right amount, whatever it was, I'll still be with my family, but I won't it, almost like interstellar. I'll be in another dimension. So I'll still be here, but it won't be the same. And that was terrifying for me. So I would just spend hours and that was the most frustrating compulsion I had. Or could be if I walked a certain way, I would have to kind of walk back the same sort of route. Um, so that that was like 
my young childhood and then kind of it morphed into what was originally called homosexual themed OCD, but now obviously stigma attached to that. So we call it sexual orientation OCD because of course someone um, who is gay can be really obsessed about what if I'm straight and they're terrified by that idea because it's not who they are, you know? Um, so I, I, I was obviously having intrusive thoughts about other guys, other teens or whatever. I mean, that was actually triggered by a dream I had. Um, Anyway, so that lasted for a couple of years. And then uh, I'm trying to, there's something else there I'm missing, I'm forgetting. But then it, as I got into my 20s, it morphed into like hit and run stuff, all the way from my 20s relationship OCD. So I would um, uh, go on a date, the date would be great. But then between the first date and second date, I would just be flooded with anxiety, getting all these thoughts like I'm going to ruin their life or, you know, what happens if they're not right or this thing about them was hyper-focused on attributes um so yeah all from my 20s dating was was how for me um and it was actually when i when i met my wife the first six months were just horrible um not not because of her just because of the anxiety and the thoughts um uh and and then the thing that really made me seek treatment oh actually i did seek treatment when i was 17 or 16 to the nhs i saw a psychologist then a psychiatrist or maybe the other way around and they basically said, yeah, it could be mild OCD, but we're not sure it's severe enough yet. You know, go away, read these books. And if they don't help, come back and we can we can do CBT. So this was like 2003 or something uh, around that time, maybe 2002. Uh, obviously, I was 17 at the time. I wasn't a reader. I didn't read the books. I continued struggling until I was in my late 20s. At this point, luckily enough, I could just about afford to go privately. Uh, so I didn't go back to the NHS because I, I, re- I felt I needed help like now. Um, it was actually real, real event OCD, which is the theme, which is the one that pushed me over the edge to finally go get treatment. Uh, and real event, well, false memory OCD is where these two get blended. But typically um, you, you kind of you get these memories, but they're not really memories because nothing's happened. So it's where it's false memory, but you're not sure if it happened or not. Uh, and real event is um, it could be loosely based on something that actually happened that maybe is perfectly okay. And maybe it was a gray thing, you know, as in like not quite good, not quite bad, uh, but you hyper obsess and replay it over and over and over again in your head, which is what we call like mental compulsions, uh, rumination. Um, and that was driving me insane, figuring out whether I was a bad person or not. Uh, I know insane is obviously a stigmatized word, but sorry, it just came up. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, I have a podcast that's called Proper Mental. So that kind, oh, of, there you go, that there kind you of shows go. where I stand yeah. on that. <laughs> and anyway, yeah, I don't mind the word insane because for me, it's a very legacy old school word. And things like psychosis and schizophrenia, I don't look down on them. They're just people that are having a break from reality, having a hard time. They've got reasons for this. Like, so for me that even the word crazy doesn't bother me. It's because it's so detached from my view of mental health now. Yeah. Um, anyway, that's yeah. me justifying my, my no, point. no, I'm, um, I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm exactly, I'm on the same page, you know, yeah. I kind of think like, well, that's how I talk. I can only use the words that are available to go. me. Good. And if it's like, there are some things I, I do think it's important to be strict about, but there's other things that you kind of think, well, if someone uses the word crazy and they and I kind of straight away say to them, you know, oh, we shouldn't use that word. Yeah. Well, they're trying to engage in a conversation. That's true. And, and you, yeah. you kind of, you pull that rug out too quick. Well, they're going to shut down and we're supposed to be trying to get people to talk about this stuff. Yeah. Right. So you kind of have to kind of, you know, the, the learning, the words will come later. Right. We've got to, we've got to get the conversation meet, started. Yeah, meet them where they're at. 
exactly that. Yeah, and I like the yeah your podcast is called Proper Mental because as as a kid, that's the phrase I, I guess you would have used of someone did something that's proper mental. Yeah, you know, I, like, it's um yeah. it's, it's what I thought was happening to me when I was yeah. not well. You know, I know I didn't know I didn't know what mental health was. I didn't know mm. what anything was. I didn't know what was happening, and it was the only words I had for it was yeah. I thought I was going proper mental same yeah. as you know i get Crazy, proper 30 yeah. yeah and today's proper heart and it, it's just yeah. how you know it's the words the words we yeah. have right yeah. yeah 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 but um yeah i mean on that actually the um uh yeah, when i was a kid i just had this clear memory of when i was about i think i was about nine and i was really stuck at the doorway of my bedroom going back and forth back and forth back and forth probably for about 30 minutes my parents were downstairs i don't know where my brother was it was like maybe 8 p.m at night and i was just i just felt to use the word I was going crazy I just I I was so frustrated I remember crying and thinking why is this happening this can't and I remember at the time this can't be what everyone else experiences like I was lucky that that came to me that I was able to see that this can't be normal um although I didn't necessarily do anything about it for years but I had that epiphany of maybe there's hope or there's something not quite right here um but that really sticks out for me um, yeah up to that point i guess i felt it was normal i was just doing it but that where it just got me stuck for so long i was just like this this can't be right yeah definitely were they for like people around you Stuart? was Mm. it kind of seen as like just you know ah that's just Stuart. that's just what he does was it kind of like thought of as almost like a personality trait or were you kind of doing these things in secret or how how did that yeah a bit of both so um they they i don't think i probably still call it this but ocd was always called the secret illness uh, also the doubting disease, but the secret illness, because people with OCD were incredibly good at hiding their compulsions. Well, for a start, a lot of people's compulsions are in their head, so you can't see it. Maybe they glaze over a bit or something like that, or they look distracted, but otherwise you can't see it. The physical compulsions, people, including myself, I just got very good at hiding it because I was ashamed. Because the fear was, if I got noticed, they would, this is what I thought at nine years old, that I would they they would think I'm crazy and they would lock me up in a straitjacket and I wouldn't see my family. That that's the worry I had. And I think that's changed. A lot of young people now I see they, they're going to their parents, they're sharing this stuff, which I think is really positive. But in our generation, uh, it just yeah, that had that that straitjacket image, and I was ashamed of even telling my parents. Um, they did notice a couple of things, but it was just seen as me being a bit weird and a bit of a just a kid, an odd kid. Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah, I hit it, hit it well. Yeah, and that's really common, isn't it, with a lot of yeah. uh, mental illness, you know. So, um, yeah. and that in itself is incredibly exhausting, and that often um, then yeah. goes on to kind of feed the problem, right? That that exhaustion, yeah. yeah. So once you've started getting getting help um, and to kind of understand what you were experiencing, um, was it a what sort of process was that, mate, to kind of get to a place where you're like, no, yeah. do you know, what? I can, I I know what this is, and I understand it, and I can live my life around it through it however that was. yeah so i did some some cbt i did some acceptance commitment therapy uh and then actually then i it was it's a weird weird reason why i went into this therapy is nothing to do with ocd um but i did more sort of humanistic psychodynamic type counseling and i've been with her for six and a bit years now um of my own accord the last three or apart from last year was as part of my training to become a therapist they they wanted us to do weekly therapy so i continued um with her uh but now i've 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 stuck with it and that's been really good to work for a lot of the family stuff and other stuff that wasn't obviously ocd but i also had the skills already 
from ACT and CBT to, to work on the OCD, continue it now in my own time alongside this therapy. Um, but yeah, specifically for OCD, you can get the skills pretty quickly and it's about working, working them and making sure you're doing them at home and stuff. And then the whole goal of CBT, most CBT therapists will say uh, the goal is that you become your own therapist, at least in the case of these CBT skills and then get top ups if you need. Um, but yeah, the CBT is great at empowering people with tools that they can yeah. continue to use for life. And a big one, I think for me with, with the kids and teens, I see psychoeducation is a huge part of what I do, really getting them to understand what's going on in the brain, why it's happening. If we keep doing compulsions, how it's not going to help in the long term, only in the short term, that relief you get, but it's not changing a damn thing in the long term. It's just making it worse. Um, I think it's hugely important. Another thing on that that took me ages to learn, but I think is worth sharing. So most people, when they talk about OCD, they'll call it a bully and they'll, they'll externalize it. It's something different to me. Um, and I get why they do that because especially with the, the horrible intrusive thoughts, I don't want to acknowledge that there's any, any part to do with me. Now, whereas I say, actually, it's your downstairs brain just perceiving a threat and it just wants to keep you safe. Yeah, it doesn't mean you're any of the things it's telling you it's just afraid and it's attaching onto anything it can think of. Um, and for me, there's a lot more compassion in that of it's my brain and it's scared. It's a part of my brain that's scared and I need to soothe it and help calm it and regulate it. Um, and I saw it for a bully for years and that did help me. And if any of my clients want to use that term, I'll use it on their behalf. I'm not, I don't have a problem with it in, in that way, but for me, I think just seeing it as a, a very scared part of our brain that just needs showing that it's okay is is a way of i think dealing with it better yeah it's a lovely way to put it it's a lovely way mm. to think of it i'm i'm obsessed with like this whole thing around compassion i find myself talking about it all the time because we're yeah. so we live in a society that's like increasingly less and less compassionate right and yeah. at, at the same time i think there's a real parallel with how we feel about ourselves and i kind of think based on absolutely nothing than talking to a lot of people about this stuff i kind of think that once we can be more compassionate to ourselves, then that allows us, that gives us the skills to be more compassionate to other people. But yeah. the, around the whole mental conversation, you know, this thing about compassion, I really think there's something, there's something in there. It's like a term that, you know, stop prescribing people yoga, start teaching people how to be compassionate yeah. for themselves. I really think there's something, there's something in there somewhere I'm trying to grasp at. But, um, no, I think you're hundred percent right. I mean, yeah, the, the other way I look at compassion is it, it can be an act too, you know? So, so, so yoga in that sense could be compassionate, but it's all about intention. So why am I doing yoga? If it's to become flexy, then it's not really compassionate. There's nothing wrong with that, but if it's, this is a self-care thing for me and it's me spending then it is a compassionate act, you know? Um, but yeah, yeah. yeah yoga teachers don't come at me, by the way. Yeah, I'm yeah, a, yeah. I am a yoga teacher, so All right, cool. I'm allowed to say things about yeah. yoga, but um, that was just the first thing that popped into my into No, my no, mind. but you're 100% right. It's all about intention, though. So, you know, going for a walk, am I going to see scenery? And look, there's nothing wrong with that. That's awesome. But or, uh, if I but if I'm doing it to, to really spend time myself and be there for myself and get a fresh perspective then you're doing it for compassionate reasons. So that's a compassionate act. But yeah, typically the conversations we have need to change in our heads. There's that inner critic I mentioned earlier, like a lot of us are so hard on ourselves and it's, especially if we're depressed and then, and then we've got that voice beating ourselves up. You're not going to feel good. Yeah. <laughs> so it's about changing it to be like, yeah, I'm depressed and this really, really sucks, but I'm doing my best. I'm, I'm trying, I'm, I'm trying to figure this out. I'm human. I'm, you know, it's all of that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I feel I kind of think sometimes we lose that 
in the sound bites, right? So we have to talk in a certain amount of characters. So that whole, yeah. like, it's okay to not be okay thing yeah. that I see that as, mm. you know, acceptance and, and compassion, but it's very yeah. easy to see that and kind of like sign up for a life of sadness or, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, like it can, it can be interpreted different ways, but yeah. again, that's probably another, another tangent. Mm. Yeah. I, I was really interested to chat to about your work as a therapist yeah. and kind of, was that something that was informed by your own experiences or by the podcast or was that something you always wanted to do? Where did that journey begin? Yeah, so both. Um, actually, when I was, uh, I struggled at school, which I think, yeah, I think OCD played a big part in this because the anxiety, I was never present in class as in mentally present. I was away with the fairies, so to speak, you know. One, one, one uh, secondary school teacher actually wrote in my report uh, something like, uh, one minute, Stuart comes across as the most in intellectually astute student. And the next minute, he's looking out the window and I wonder if his mind's even on this planet. Wow. which I, I think just summed me up. I had the capacity to do well, but I could never focus. And yeah, so so when I got to end of year 11, went to A-levels, sat down with a teacher when they're helping you pick what to do at A-level. And I said, I really want to do psychology and sociology because the year before I did a mock interview and they asked me, what do you want to do when you're older? And I said, I wanted to be a psychologist. And at the time that meant therapist to me. Uh, obviously psychologists can be therapists um, but I don't know where it came from it just felt really true to me and then and then I said I want to do psychology and sociology and she and she, she said compassionately she wasn't being mean but she said look I think you're going to struggle based on the grades I mean I, I almost failed GCSEs um, and I know she's wrong now she should have let me struggle because if I cared about the subject I would have actually put the work in which is the thing I found out when I got to uni I, I ended up doing marketing had a career for 10 years in marketing again because there was psychological aspects to marketing convincing people to buy stuff typically they don't need sometimes buy stuff they do need there are marketing for companies that we do need for say that I just take that back yeah so then when I got to uni I, I, I was I suddenly loved education because I was doing something that I enjoyed um, and I, I read books for the first time. I actually studied and I got a B overall in my undergrad or 2-1, which I'd never got a B in my entire academic career up to that point. I'd barely got any Cs. Uh, and then I did a master's in marketing. I got, a dis I got a B overall, but I got a distinction for my dissertation. I'd never got an A before until master's level. So it's like, I just share that because I think you can change academically. What where you're at doesn't have to be the end. Um, anyway, so then then uh, I did, you know, twenty eight was podcast about the first year or less than a year doing a podcast. I was like, I, I'm going to do it. I'm going to shift careers. Um, it was financially tight to do it. I just about managed to do it. Uh, I had to do a year conversion masters because I didn't have an undergrad in psychology. Did that at Queen Mary in mental health. Um, and then, yeah, then I did a bit of CBT stuff. And then I wanted to do my full training. It's a three-year training at Roehampton to be a child and adolescent counselor and psychotherapist. Uh, and yeah, so I qualified for a year. And yeah, so it's kind of, I for some reason, there was something in me that wanted to be a therapist, a psychologist as a young, young kid. And then, um, and then it was the podcast that said, yeah, yeah I have to do this. Yeah, sure. Did that kind of, as you were on that, on that journey, you know, um, did that kind of evolve the podcast, you know, just the sort of way you think about questions and who you speak to and how you ask things and stuff like that. Did it start to, or do you have to keep that quite separate, but, you know, put different hats on for it? Um, 
Yeah, initially it did start to evolve it. But the last year of doing the podcast, now that I'm a qualified therapist, I, I feel I have much more authority to put my own opinions in. Um, not as I necessarily didn't have before, but it just, I needed that validation, I think. So now I, yeah, I'm much more like, and I don't necessarily bring in my clients' stories or anything like that, but I will say the stuff I'm doing with clients, I'll bring that up as an example. Um, and that that's helped a lot. And uh, as a therapist, I mean, it, my training was integrative. It just means I bring in lots of different therapies. Uh, and arguably that's the way it should be because we're all individuals. Um, and so I'm, I'm always passionate. You know, I recently did a, a training um, in sand play therapy, which is much more psychodynamic. It's based on Carl Jung's work. Um, it's much more in symbolism and stuff. You know, someone puts a dragon in the tray and it's facing a certain way and it's red. What does that mean? You know, is the dragon bigger than the person they put in for them? And blah, blah, blah. so you can really analyze it. And some first would say this is nonsense. But when I've used sand tray with, with all my clients, not just ACD, um, it really brings up stuff and opens conversations that haven't happened in two months of working with them. So there's something for me, really, I mean, really inspired by that at the minute. But now most other OC therapists would just tell you I'm bananas <laughs> for saying that. But for me, I'm trying to stay really open-minded. So I'm doing ERP, I'm using the evidence-based treatments, but we know there's a gap. How can we fill that gap? So I'm always looking for other therapies and ideas and ways of doing things. Yeah, I suppose it's all um, having as many tools, right? Because you don't know what the job's going to be. Yeah. You know, I work in the sure. um, in like the physical rehab space mm-hmm. and that is very, very similar. I've done all sorts of courses and stuff I very rarely use, but every now and again, someone yeah. will come through my door and I think I know exactly what your back needs. You know, yeah. it's like, it's um, it's just handy, it. to, handy to have. Yeah, that's definitely. it, yeah, yeah. Otherwise, all you've got is a hammer and if you keep hitting things, it's not always a nail, you know? That's it, yeah. That was my impro- approach to my own uh, mental yeah. health. That's been said to me by a therapist before. Oh, that's really? My, yeah, that was my approach to my own mental health for a very long time. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It doesn't work, kids. Spoiler alert. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Um, the, I wanted to um, also ask you about that something I think seems to be quite specific to OCD is um, the, the community around OCD because and there's communities within all different diagnosis of course yeah. but it does there's a really strong community around ocd and i see that um like online all the time mm. and it's just it's so so lovely was you know when did that sort of become um i suppose when we were aware of that that there's this whole like you know whole thing out there of people that are just sort of supporting and looking after each other yeah yeah and i mean that's interesting you say that because I, I always see people with like um borderline personality disorder pages on instagram or eating disorder pages but maybe that i don't know is there is there not much of a community there so i guess i'm really blinded by ocd right by blind it's not right but i'm biased towards it i don't see much else so but it's interesting to hear you say that um uh yeah, so I when I started the OCD stories, um, there wasn't a great deal. Uh, there, there, don't get me wrong, there were stuff out there, uh, obviously, because I used it. There was podcasts before me that I listened to that inspired me. and um, But it just now, it's it's like 50 times the amount than when I first started. So that, and that's incredible to see, you know, there's new advocates pop up every day on Instagram or I guess TikTok, I'm not on it. Um too old uh, exactly the same i've got enough on me i have no interest yeah, yeah it's not yeah not no way me. um and 
yeah so it's it's amazing to see the community how they all help each other how they they you're seeing loads of collabs at the minute like two instagrammers will get together and collab to share information or create graphics so seeing all that it's awesome to see and it's it's you know my podcast isn't going to help everyone there's some people that are going to hate podcasts or hate my voice or me or whatever and that's okay uh, so they need there needs to be other advocates who are going to resonate with those people you know so it's incredible to see to see the amount it, it grows um, yeah yeah no it's yeah. a really lovely thing and it's just something i've noticed and like i said that's you know i'm sure there are really lovely communities that get around all sorts of things but it's spe- some really specific to the ocd community and that's the term i i hear people just talking about a lot or people mentioning or people writing about stuff. And it's just really nice to really nice to see. There is. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't know if this had an impact on it, but the international OCD foundation, which is the American charity, basically they, um, they do an annual conference every year and they get like 2000 people. Um, they, people fly internationally as well. It's not just Americans. Um, but I think that really strengthens a lot of the community because a lot of the advocates go there, then they come away for a year. I found this and been really inspired and then done more work or or inspired to keep going because it can be quite tough. This, 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 as you know, doing the podcast and this work. Um, So I don't know if they've had an impact, but they, they probably have, but it's that when you go there, the other thing I noticed is it's not, it's not, uh, you, no one else can see this. So I'm kind of therapists and psychologists and psychiatrists up here, and then and then advocates and sufferers and people down here and family members. It's not that it's, everyone's on the same level. Everyone's there to learn about OCD, both professionals and people with it. So that's that is just such a nice atmosphere, and I think that rolls out to the community more generally. That there's no experts and and them and us. It's we're all in this together. And that's, that's incredible. And I think a lot of that is a lot of people, a lot of the therapists um, uh, with, uh, who treat OCD sometimes have had experiences of it. So that's, I think that's why they're, they're on the same level and really passionate. Not always, there's many that don't have it and they, they advocate incredibly hard for OCD and the people. But yeah, it's, it's fascinating. I don't have a good answer, but it's... Yeah, it's, it's just nice. nice to see, right? Yeah, I yeah. suppose it's tied into that compassion word again somewhere. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, very much so. What's um what's the plan with the podcast? Is that you're just going to carry on going? It's an unbelievable amount of episodes that Thank are out you. there. Is the plan to just keep um you know keep Survival moving with it and <laughs> um, making it happen any way you can? Yeah, I want to see the numbers keep growing. That's obviously a, a, an ego thing, but also it's just nice to see, well, that's reaching more people, you know, helping more people and keep that keeps me motivated. I'm quite a goal orientated person. So I'm always thinking, okay, how can that number grow? That number grows, my ego gets appeased. And also uh, I know more people are being helped, which is why I wanted to do the podcast. So really for me, it's just making sure I, I, I try and find the best guests I can or, and it's not just best in terms of credentials, it's best in terms of who's going to make a good podcast, who has something maybe different to say or new to say or incredible story or obviously everyone's story is incredible, but different that hasn't been said on the podcast before. Um, so that for me, my main focus is, is, the, is the guests. So yeah. like I saw a Elon Musk thing a while ago, a video, which he was, uh, he was knocking actually um, particular side of business, but he was saying, all you need to focus on is the product every day. How can I make this product better? If you focus on that, you'll, you'll be successful. I'm sure there's other things you need to focus on, like paying your tax 
tactics and all that stuff. But um, I like that point of I was doing all this stuff on social media and, and now I've dialed it back. And it's like, how can I make the podcast better? And usually 90% of that is what guests can I get on? So that's where most of my focus goes. And the podcast hasn't suffered as a result. It's probably doing better. So yeah, and keep oh, it mate. simple. Yeah. Yeah. It's probably a lovely metaphor though for mental health, right? And yeah. Focusing oh, on yeah. that and everything else in your life is just going to yeah. yeah, figure itself out. But yeah, I'm, I love the show, Matt. I think it's really good. I um, have learned a lot from, from listening to episodes, um, you know, about OCD and, um I, the the idea of having stories i think is is really fascinating to hear from real real people i really do think that's um that's powerful and, and empowering and the balance between the experts and the and the chats yeah. is just a, it's a wonderful wonderful thing mate thank yeah you. it's really really cool appreciate it mate thank you so much for your time today it's been a pleasure to meet you and um thank you so much for your time i really really appreciate it. that was wonderful that was so so wonderful i really enjoyed it yeah no it means a lot to have me on and uh, just keep up your good work mate thank you thank you very much big up to the proper mental podcast the proper mental podcast